We have to realize that there's a lot that happens in the world that is not based on complete evidence or all the sound data that we have. Our patients may have a very undata-ish uh, reason for some of the decisions they make about medicine compliance or whether or not they're, they're coming in to a clinic. Welcome to the Better Care Podcast, where we tell the stories of clinicians, healthcare leaders, and innovators who are improving the way clinicians work and deliver care. On today's episode, Evidence Care's Amy Deaton interviews Leslie Meehan of the Tennessee Department of Health, and they do an incredible deep dive on the topic of health equity. Leslie shares the connection between urban planning and health equity, how hospitals, payers, government, and communities can work together to creatively collaborate on reducing social determinants of health and creating shared definitions and metrics around health equity. Enjoy this conversation with Amy Deaton and Leslie Meehan. All right, let's do this. Good afternoon. I'm Amy Deaton, CEO at Evidence Care, and this episode's host of the Better Care podcast, a podcast we hope spawns innovation through these intentional conversations. Our guest on this episode is Leslie Meehan. Leslie is a mom of three boys, an avid runner, and the deputy commissioner for the Department of Health for the state of Tennessee. Welcome to the show, Leslie. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate you taking time out of your very busy summer schedule to chat with me today. Uh, on the last episode, we had two physician leaders on. We had Dr. Granny Morse from Oshner and Dr. Amit Vashist from Ballad Health. And we had asked them, what are your health system's top priorities? And not surprising, health equity and access was on both of their lists. And we just scratched the surface on the topic. And so I'm so glad that you're here today to dig in a bit more, because I know this is an area you're well-versed in and very passionate about. So I want to have that conversation today and ask you some questions. And then we'll leave time at the end of the pod for folks from the audience to submit some questions. Okay, um, so before we get too far into our conversation, Leslie, I think it would be great if you could share some background about your role as the deputy commissioner and maybe some backgrounds on the Department of Health for the state. Absolutely. The Tennessee Department of Health is actually the largest provider of health care in the state of Tennessee. We're a little bit atypical from most health departments in the country at the state level in that we do provide a lot of clinical care. So in any given year, we touch about one in every five Tennesseans, whether that's through a flu shot, it could be a breast or cervical exam. We have tuberculosis clinics, we have HIV clinics, and we do things, of course, like issue birth certificates, death certificates, marriage and divorce. So there are a lot of ways that we directly touch Tennesseans. My role is in the non-clinical space. So we have half of our shop devoted to the few thousand employees who run our clinics. We have a little over 100 clinics, at least one in every each of the 95 counties in Tennessee. So we have about 2,500 employees who oversee those and who staff those clinics, everything from our docs and our nurses to our dentists and hygienists. And then we have our office staff and, and clerical staff as well. 
And then the other side of the house is really thinking about programmatically, what can we do to target specific populations, specific diseases, and some of the root causes of health in Tennessee. And so that is what we help to guide on uh, this end of the house. And it's been such a pleasure to be there. I've been there for about eight years and it's been a, a, a true joy. And I've learned quite a bit about a state department of, of health because I've never been in one before. Well, that's really interesting. Um, I, I know we've chatted before and you've talked about how you started in urban planning and then sort of evolved into the population health. And I don't immediately think of urban planning and healthcare as related, but if I take right. a step back, I can certainly see how one impacts another. Would you mind chatting a little bit about that evolution and, and how you started? Sure. It, it definitely is a little bit atypical, but given where we are now, especially post-COVID, it makes a lot more sense. So urban planners are tasked with thinking about how a community grows. So where are we putting housing? Where do roads go? Where do parks go? Where are new schools going to be built? Where is land zoned for, let's say, a grocery store? Where are the community college? Where are the jobs located? And so every facet of a community, from where you go, where you live, to how you're going to get there. Do you have access to public transportation, walking, biking? Can you do those things for your sole transportation mode? Or can you do those things just for leisure? How are we going to plan for all those different ways of getting around? And then how can we make sure that there are things like housing at different price points? We want housing to be attainable for all income levels. And of course, that's going to mean different price points, some rental housing, some homes for ownership, things like that. And so urban planning really has a lot to do with quality of life for folks. So for example, in Nashville, it might surprise some to learn that over 50% of those who are in Nashville are actually housing poor, which means that they are spending more on their income than they should be on housing. So about at least uh, any of us should be spending maybe 30% tops of our income on our mortgage or our rent. But for many, that can go up to 50%, even 80% of their income on housing. So the next biggest expenditure is often transportation. So again, whether that's a car payment, whether you're maintaining your car, filling it with gas, if you're using Uber, even if you're going around by bus, transportation is one of the next biggest costs. And then food after that. And that doesn't leave a lot, especially for healthcare. So if you're paying your co-pays, if you're buying your medicines, and that's how we often hear about households having to make a choice between do they purchase food, do they purchase their medicine? And we're not just talking about some of the population. We're actually talking about a pretty good chunk of the population who's struggling. Uh, an example is about a third of Americans don't drive. And that number may seem a little bit surprising. That could be because they are either too young or too old to drive. It could be because of a disability. It could be because of an income constraint, or it also could be just by choice. So if we're only planning our communities so that you can get around by car, what that means is that we don't have choices for people. And that means that a lot of folks can be homebound. They can't get to all the places they need to go. They can't get to education. They can't get to jobs, things like that. So these choices that urban planners make with the community really end up impacting our health. Of the 
biggest three contributing factors to preventable disease, which is the number one killer in our nation, right? It's all the chronic disease that actually doesn't have to be there that is preventable. The largest contributing factors we hear from folks are having a roof over their head or stable housing, having transportation, and having access to food. So when we think about healthcare, we often think, oh, we think of physicians and nurse practitioners, we think of prescriptions, we think of diagnoses and tests, those kinds of things. But we actually can't solve for a lot of what we're seeing in modern society from a doctor's office. A lot of what we need to be solving for is upstream from the doors of healthcare, and that's actually in the realm of urban planning, oddly enough. Yeah, I, I, that's so interesting. And I'm going to circle back to that in terms of the collaboration with other sectors. But I guess let's dig into that more. So how would you define health equity specifically in the context of you know the state and your role? I think health equity, in my definition, is simply the equal ability for any of us to be able to live healthy, prosperous, and full lives. I think a goal for anyone is to be able to live life to one's fullest potential, to be able to provide for your family, to enjoy life, to enjoy friends, and to have a good quality of life. And again, a lot of the things that are contributing to our health equity are actually coming from the places and spaces in which we live and in which we spend our time. We know that genetics is really only about 10% of our health. So it's an important component of our health, but it's not necessarily the largest factor. And neither is access to healthcare. About 50% to 60 or 70% of our health, depending on where you live, is again, really influenced by the environment in which you live. And that can include some of the traditional definitions of, of environment, if you will, like water quality and air quality. But we're also talking about heat islands. It's summertime right now. So we're seeing a lot of exposure to abnormally high temperatures. And for folks who don't have the ability to pay for their air conditioning, don't have air conditioning, are waiting for a bus outside or walking or taking a bicycle, maybe can't afford to fix the air conditioning in their car. Those are all contributing factors for us. So there's a, a, a lot, again, that we think of in environment that's not just the air quality, the water quality, but we're really thinking, again, again about those places and spaces that surround us. Yeah, you had talked about being the largest healthcare provider in the state of Tennessee, um, which, again, when I heard that, that was surprising to me. You don't traditionally think of the Department of Health as a provider um, of, of that you know, scale. Do you think about some of those social determinants, like you talked about, um, transportation and other things, as you are planning for those brick and mortar locations for those providers? Absolutely. And that's been one of the, the greatest stories that I've had. I, as I mentioned, I joined the department eight years ago because we didn't really have a book of business helping us think about this. We mm-hmm. were the deliverers of healthcare. We had facilities in all of these counties But yet each year we either rehabilitate or completely reconstruct about six or so of of our facilities. So in a a decade or a decade and a half, we're talking about touching every single building that's under our purview. And that's a really important part of thinking about this healthcare delivery. We really like to think about our health departments as 
conduits for activity in the community or, or a public space, if you will. Oftentimes we think about our public spaces being maybe the local park, perhaps a school playground, but really there are a lot more public spaces that can be serving our community to a higher and better value. So an example is a street. If we go back to that notion of a street just being used for cars, well, that's just using it for one purpose. But if we have buses on that street, if we have bike lanes, if we add a sidewalk, if we use some of that real estate to think about having sidewalk cafes or to have wider sidewalks or even turning parking spaces into mini parks, you start to think about the street as a canvas and you think about it as a public amenity. And how can we change that amenity so that it's serving the most people possible? And that's the same type of notion that we've thought of with our health departments. And we actually came up with a, a guidebook for how we can be thinking about our health departments differently. So on the outside of our health departments, we have some that have playgrounds, we have community gardens, we have walking tracks. So we're trying to make the health department a destination for the community. Many of our health departments are located in very rural parts of our state. And so there may not be a lot of places to exercise or to gather. There may not be a picnic shelter or a, a playground that's close by. So if we can think about our health departments in that way, then we can better serve the public. And then on the inside of the building, we're thinking about how to make the building lighter and brighter and to give it a less of a clinical feel, to be honest with you, because we want it to be warm and welcoming even down to the types of cabinetry that we have and the knobs that we put on the cabinets, the types of flooring that we have, we're really trying to make clinical care feel less clinical and be an extension of the warmth and caring that our staff give to our patients and making the building reciprocate and reflect that type of care and concern. It's really interesting. How have patients and the community responded to that? And how do you track, you know, you're, you're investing in these initiatives and these programs. How do you track some of the outcomes and the impacts on um, public health and, and healthcare? Such a great question. So we do a survey of our patients every year and we tend to have a really high response rate. And I think, again, that comes down to in some counties, we may be the only game in town. We all know that rural healthcare is struggling across the country. There's a lot of reasons for that. There's also a lot of solutions. Telehealth is one of them. But we have this opportunity to be a longstanding presence in Tennessee communities. And a lot of the healthcare services we deliver are marketed, if you will, by word of mouth. These are our buildings and staff who've been in their communities sometimes for decades. We have some staff who've been in the same role for 10, 20, 30 years because they're just stewards of their communities. And so we track data through the patient surveys, but we also have an initiative where when we're investing in either one of our health departments or if we're investing in the community itself with a park or a walking track or a playground or a splash pad. And when folks sure. think public health, they may think, what? You've got a public health department in investing in a splash pad or a farmer's market pavilion. But again, we've realized that we can help be a trifecta, if you will, for a community. We can help with a facility that may actually improve health, make help be a community gathering space. So add a little bit to community cohesion. We could be a tourist attraction and it can really help with economic development. And so for sure. all of those projects, we have pre and post data that we collect. You know, to dig a little bit further into your question, 
it's hard to measure prevention, right? Because you're basically trying to measure disease and injury that's not happening. And that doesn't happen overnight. We are often given grants for things like diabetes prevention, and it's very hard to take some money and do some outreach into the community. And then you can't really expect diabetes rates to fall the next year. So these are our long-term strategies, and we fully believe that they're sound investments, and we know that they're paying off in more ways than one. Yeah, I mean, I really like that concept of thinking of not healthcare just in our traditional way of thinking about healthcare in the hospitals and the clinics, but also this more holistic community responsibility that impacts healthcare. Since social determinants, some of which you've started to talk about, if you could dig into social determinants, and I imagine at your clinics that you are capturing information about those patients to see how that can impact the downstream effects of their health care. Absolutely. And this is something that we're seeing all across the country. Many of our electronic health records or medical records are starting to collect this data, whether it's in a public health care setting or a private sector clinical setting, because we're realizing, again, that this is very important. And an anecdote from our former clinical director, who has since retired, she had just such a great story. She was a pediatric ER nurse. And she had patients who would come in with an asthma attack. They'd treat them. And she would write a prescription for an inhaler and send them home until she started digging a little more deeply and realizing that some of the kiddos she was seeing were living in mold infested housing. So no number of inhalers were going to tackle what these kiddos were, were breathing every day. And then transportation was often a barrier. Money was often a barrier. So you could give a child a prescription, but the caregivers may not be able to get to the local pharmacy to get it filled. And she ended up going to a school that had a lot of children with families who weren't able to provide the entire type of support that they would like to provide for their children. And so she got a lot of boots on the ground experience and had to become really creative with solutions. But that's ended up being why she came to the public health department and worked with us because she wanted to be part of more of a systems approach and not just do this patient by patient encounter, but to really think about systemically, how can we help more kids? And how can we do that through places like the school system where you have a lot of touch points with children at one time? So those are are some of, of the things that we're thinking about. And you mentioned social determinants of health. That's a word that has really come to fruition, I would say, in the last five to eight years. And Again, simply what we mean by that are the environments in which we live and the choices people are able to make in those environments. So common things like, do you have a roof over your head? Is a stable place to live? A lot of people who can't afford rent, let's say, may have to move frequently. Do you have a way to get around? Do you have a way to bring income into your family? Do you have an opportunity for education or training so that you can continue to grow financially? And do you have access to healthcare? We often add recreation on, on top of that because it's really important to have quality of life, places to go, places to, to be and to feel like you're part of a community. So when we search social determinants of health, we're really just thinking about those basic tenants that all of us need to live a quality life. Absolutely. So when I think about health equity and access, I mean, it's it's a huge issue. Obviously, it's on 
a lot of different sectors priority list. So I guess my question here is, you know, I'm hearing about payers working on health equity, health systems, government, in your example, even community and nonprofits um, are recognizing the severity and the, the lack of access. So do you think, in your opinion, that we're working collaboratively enough or are folks trying to make progress in parts in isolation? Like, how well do you interact? You talk about capturing data. Are you sharing that with the health systems? Are you collaborating? I'd love to dig in more around that. Those are such great questions. And I think we're at a really turnkey moment in this evolution. So the Joint Commission has required that hospitals and clinics start collecting social determinants of health data. And we're putting that data in the EMR and different providers are utilizing that information in different ways. Some of them use it to weave that anecdotal story about their patients' lives, like the nurse practitioner I just mentioned. Right. So once she found out the context of her patient and realized that it wasn't going to be just as simple as writing a prescription for an inhaler, she then had to think about, well, what is her role? And is there more of a low-hanging fruit solution? For example, could she get that inhaler filled in the hospital clinic rather than having the family go to another pharmacy? But then what do you do for those larger issues? Uh, The family we mentioned had unstable or unsafe housing with mold in it. So what's the role of the provider in that space? We are finding that Federally qualified health centers have always kind of had that navigator type position. And a lot more health systems are realizing that that's a really good thing to have because it helps with patient compliance. It decreases repeat patients who are coming in for the same problem. And on the uh, insurance side, we're seeing the same thing too, that we have hotlines where folks can call in and sometimes they're even staffed by former clients, which is really interesting. It's the same principle that we've heard about you know, five, eight years ago, again, in that time frame pre-COVID, there was some really interesting data nationwide about debt collection. And what one debt collection company discovered is that they could use the same tactic that people always use, you know, call, 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 berate people, make them feel guilty, tell them that they're going to repossess their car, repossess their home if they don't pay their debt. And then one company said, you know what? What if we actually learn about folks' lives and figure out what is the barrier for them financially and can we help them? And they found out a lot of folks needed legal help. They needed help finding stable housing. They needed financial tutoring to, so they could better understand how to manage their money. They needed retirement planning. They needed help finding out if they could qualify for different benefits and things like that. And what they found was that their compliance rate went through the roof because Hmm. people felt cared about and they actually got the tools and resources they needed to be able to repay that debt. No one wants to be in debt. Right. It's the same type of, of principle here. So no patient wants to come in again and again for an asthma attack because they live in moldy housing, but they may not know the community resources available. And you asked about partnerships, and this is where I think we're just beginning down this journey. There's some really interesting work happening, especially since COVID. COVID shone a light on on this for all of us, right? We During COVID, we learned that those who are most vulnerable in our communities were those who are hit hardest by COVID. 
And it really helped us figure out that if you're struggling with finances, with housing, with food, transportation, again, all those sorts of determinants, you were more likely to have one or more chronic diseases and COVID was probably going to be a, a bigger impact for you, most likely. Mm-hmm. So we're at this time now where government institutions like public health, but also places like the departments who help with housing, with transportation, with public education, with economic development, with parks and recreation, even with arts and culture, all of those types of organizations are getting together. We have organizations that help with higher education and everyone's now wanting to solve for the same X, if you will, which is how can we provide the best quality of life for our communities and have thriving communities and thriving families. And then payers and providers are also getting into this space. I think what's going to help us is the evolution that we're on right now to get away from fee-for-service in our medical model. And we've seen that that's a trajectory that we're on. We don't know how quickly that's going to happen, but it's definitely already underway. And we know that that model just isn't sustainable. It's not working. We're putting a lot of money into our healthcare in our country, but we're not really reaping those rewards. So to answer your question, this is a really important time where we are all trying to get together around the same table. And in many spaces, we haven't been doing that. And we, we really don't know how to do that. And there may be a little bit of a, you know, some un- uncomfortable uh, conversations as we get to know each other a little bit more. But you and I both just recently completed the Nashville Healthcare Fellows Program. And we were fortunate enough to be in a room with payers and providers and nonprofits and government. And we had some of those tough conversations. And that's exactly the type of forum that we want to see so that we can try to multi-solve, if you will, and have multiple sectors together trying to make everyone's lives better, which is what we all want to see. Absolutely. And I mean, for listeners out there, I mean, this is why we have these intentional conversation is to to open up opportunities for collaboration. I, I was surprised even in some of those difficult conversations that even within single verticals of, you know, healthcare, that there was not this sharing and knowledge of initiatives around health equity um, on the payer side, on the provider side. And it's really this philosophical question of like, whose responsibility is it on some of these things? That's the tough one. And you think about the health systems that are under a lot of strain right now, staffing shortages and rising costs. There's a lot of challenges there. And then it's also like, what do we do beyond this healthcare that we're providing within our four walls and taking care of the patient beyond that? That's a, a challenge I think all of us are trying to, to solve for. Absolutely. To tack on to that, I really think about the provider space and how our providers, I almost think about them in the same space that I think about teachers. We, we often look at our school systems to try to feed children, meet all of their educational needs, but also their physical activity needs, their social emotional needs. Are we helping them with things that may be happening again externally in their lives, like stable housing and transportation and access to food? We're sending home backpacks with food with children. And so are we overtasking a system that was really meant to do one thing, which was to deliver educational content? And if we look at our providers, 
I think the same thing. We're looking at an eight-minute visit, an 11-minute visit, and how much can you expect a provider to be able to dig in? And we're lucky if some folks go to an annual exam once a year. And so how much can you really dive in if you don't have the time to be with someone and the continuity to follow up with them frequently? And so then is that the responsibility or is it a profitable business model, again, to have a patient navigator in that setting where you have somebody following up with that patient, not only making sure are they coming to their appointments and are compliant with their meds, but trying to check for these other factors. And even if you learn that someone is struggling with housing or transportation, do you have resources available to be able to direct them to that space? And if you do direct them to that space, can you follow up with them to see if that resource was useful and useful and actually solve for the problem? So you've got payers and providers both thinking about that right now. And it needs to be something that, again, is profitable for them, right? It, it, that's the bottom line. And, and that's an important thing. But we're also realizing, too, that we're all connected in this web and we all can maybe have a little bit of a, a piece of the pie, a little bit of ownership. We struggle in the same thing in the public sector and government. So an example is I spent about 15 years in the transportation sector. So we built a lot of um, roads, but we also built sidewalks and greenways and bike lanes and we funded public transportation. Well, those things can help improve health outcomes, but our money wasn't dependent on health outcomes. So it didn't matter to us whether population health got better or worse, whether BC rates climbed, diabetes rates climbed, pediatric asthma rates climbed. We were only worried about the metrics that were important to us. And so some of this is realizing that we may need to come up with common sets of metrics and get beyond the common denominator just being funding. Funding is important for all of our worlds. It's crucial. But if it's the only thing that we're thinking about, we've got to be thinking a, a little bit more broadly. We could use an, an environmental analogy if we want to. So we're seeing so many companies that are moving, for example, to electric vehicles. And mm-hmm. some of that is market driven, right? That's what consumers want. But some of it is also thinking about fossil fuels and, and resource allocation and things like that. So I think we're at a point in time where sectors may have to broaden what's in their strategic plans and may have to really be thinking about the larger systems in which we're working. And we may have a set of metrics that relate directly to our bottom line, but we also have different ways that we can measure outputs and success. And that's the space that I think we're in today. Yeah, that's interesting because I you had mentioned earlier about regulations. Now we need to capture social determinants. And I, I think about, so what's next? So now what? You have the data. What's going to be what's going to be the requirement after that in terms of how do you act, act upon that? And that's an interesting angle that you put in there with the funding. So you had talked about, is it, you know, we're at a critical point where we could be working together more. Have you heard of any forums or conferences where folks have started to come together to brainstorm on how we can work collaboratively uh, across verticals? Yeah, there's a really interesting conference that typically is held in Nashville, and it's called RISE, and it's all about social determinants of health and really drills into the space, both for payers and providers. 
years. And so that's something that we've become involved in in the last few years. And we were probably a little bit of the odd duck in the room at first because we were this government entity providing health care and we weren't like the others, but we were able to talk a little bit about some of the collaborations that we have with other sectors, again, like transportation and housing and talking mm-hmm. about that. And then just recently, a few weeks ago, we hosted the first forum on housing in Tennessee, where we're thinking about how can we provide more housing, but do it in a way where we're looking at different ways of funding housing. I'll give just a, a brief tutorial again on housing. So as a, as a refresher, as I mentioned a, a little bit ago, any of us should be spending about 30% of our income at, as a max on housing. Again, whether that's mortgage, whether that's rent, utilities, insurance, all those kinds of things wrapped into one. And what we often see in communities, especially communities that are benefiting from good economic times, housing prices go up. We also mm-hmm. in government have tended to invest in the more affluent areas of town. And this goes back to a lot of um, redlining and, and actually very intentional racism going back to World War II and the Federal Housing Home Loan Association. So in that space, what happened is you, you got out of World War II, you served your country, you were given the ability to get a loan, but only if your skin was a certain color. And then communities all across the country had maps drawn. And if you're white, you were encouraged to live in certain areas. And if you weren't white, you were prohibited from living in certain areas. And we're not talking that long ago. We're talking several decades ago. And this is still a a common practice these days. And so what has ended up happening is the sidewalks and the parks and the schools have tended to be built in the more affluent areas of town. And then we've under-resourced other areas of town. But that creates housing discrepancy. So you you have kind of the situation of in very inflated housing prices, and then you have families who have not been able to invest in housing and maybe haven't been able to make home repairs. And so you have underpriced housing that maybe isn't as current as it, it could be in terms of, again, repairs, more models, things like that. So... You get into a situation, again, like a Nashville, where more than 50% of the households in the community truly can't afford their housing. And we're not talking about the working poor. I'm talking about colleagues of mine who have graduate degrees, who have PhDs, who are living in Alabama or Kentucky and commuting an hour or more each way, because that's the only way that they can afford to live. And there's a little bit of a tipping point there, too, where if you, on average, if you're living about 10 miles outside of your community, you actually end up spending almost as much on transportation as you do on the perceived housing savings. So you're spending more on vehicle repair and maintenance, more on insurance, more on gas, those kinds of things. So you may think that you're doing a good thing by trying to save a little bit on your rent or your mortgage. But you may have to drive to more places to be able to get to education and to your employment, things like that. And so what we've seen across the country is a really interesting evolution in healthcare systems. In every state, the largest provider of employment is either a Walmart and or a health system, which is really interesting. That is. And, and both of them, actually, if you think about it, have very large 
real estate footprints. Mm -hmm. Um, Walmarts are big. And coming from urban planning, we have retail stores plan for Black Friday shopping. It's kind of ridiculous, but that's what our standards say. So if, if, if a Walmart or a Target or a shopping mall comes in, the regulations typically say, okay, what are the most people who would ever be in your facility at one time? And that's probably Black Friday. Things, of course, are changing with online shopping, but you need to build that number of parking spaces. And so if you've ever been somewhere, a grocery store, or even a, a hotel, and you're thinking, why is there so much parking? Even a church, right? Have we ever yeah. thought about churches? They're used maybe for one day a week or another religious institution. And you've got the sea of parking and it accommodates folks for maybe one or two hours a week. And then the rest of the time it's sitting vacant. So what we wanted to do was to really think about housing and how can we provide more housing without getting into kind of the the public housing formula, if you will. There is housing that is provided at a subsidy. So it's not free for anyone, but there is public housing that is found in most communities. And honestly, there isn't enough of it. And it, again, was a product of World War II and was actually created for Caucasian families post-World War II who needed a place to live. So the evolution of public housing has been really interesting. But the bottom line is it's very hard in a community that's experiencing growth to say, hey, we're so glad that you own this home and your city has gotten really popular and you bought your home for $100,000, you could sell it for $300,000, but we don't want you to. We're, we're going to say that you have to keep it at $100,000 so it'll be affordable for the next family. Well, government can't do that, right? We, we can't mm-hmm. say to people, you can't profit from right. a real estate transaction. So what some places are doing is, is land banking, and this includes healthcare systems, because they have wow. realized that they have large real estate footprints. And they can build medical towers. Well, they can also build housing. And this has come to benefit them in a few different ways. So one, you may have your trauma surgeon who has an apartment right there. And then you're not waiting for that trauma surgeon to commute in to do Mm -hmm. an emergency surgery. You've got somebody who's walking across the ambulance driveway to to get to that surgery. Mm -hmm. You also have all different kinds of staff who, again, are making different salaries and you have residents, right, who, who right. it's a teaching hospital affiliated with the university who, who aren't making much money. So you have the ability to not only provide housing for your own staff, but interestingly, you can provide housing for patients. And where this is coming into play is we'll use an example of someone who perhaps is unhoused. Maybe they don't have stable housing. Maybe they have chronic conditions. But they may be coming into the ER, right? We all hear about this. Folks who are coming into the ER because they have something that maybe doesn't need to be treated at the ER, but the ER provides them, a it's an indoor space, they might get a meal, they're on a bed. And so for some folks, this could be a, a really welcome respite to come into that ER for the night. Well, the hospital is going to have to write off in a lot of instances right. that visit, Right. Mm-hmm. Well, let's say that write-off is $1,500 just, just to have somebody in a bed for, for a night and, and to check on them. And even if that patient is discharged the next day. Well, if they're building housing, they may be able to actually provide for 
housing for that individual. And maybe it's not even going to cost $1,500. Maybe it's just going to cost them seven dollars or $800 a night. So we may be able to take some of those frequent flyers in our healthcare systems who are uninsured or underinsured and help them with housing or other social supports, clothing, food, transportation. And it actually might be a savings for the hospital system. And this is so, something that, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Keep going. So I, I'm really interested in this. So this concept, so is it something where you envision the government would work with a health system who has this land or is it the responsibility of the health system? Because I, I find it, it would be hard for them to also you know, invest in that where they don't get revenue back. It would be a cost savings, but is there some sort of collaboration between government and the health systems to make this uh, even feasible? Absolutely. So we're seeing tax breaks, just like when you hear that an, a new company comes into a town, like an Amazon comes in and government has the ability to think about how much to tax an entity and can give that entity a tax break. They can give them other incentives as well. And so we're seeing that across the country. We wanted to learn more about this model. This has been going on in some parts of the country, in Ohio, in California, in various places for more than a decade. And we wanted to learn from these models. Mm-hmm. We're also seeing models that are providing care and housing in the same facility. So you might be building a facility, let's say for older adults, that has a clinic and maybe even a small drugstore or grocery store in the same building. And we wanted to to learn about this. And so we brought some of those experts in, especially those who could tell us a little bit more about what was the financial incentive for them and how has it been going and would they continue to do this? And so that's something that we're, it's just the beginning of a conversation. We held up forum a few weeks ago, but our goal is that we want to have more of this type of innovative thinking, if you will, where we're not just thinking about a private individual having to pay for their own rent or their own mortgage or the government on the flip side, providing government subsidized housing. But how can we have maybe a third party like a health system come in and provide some housing and it be a little bit of a a cost savings for them? Yeah, that's a really interesting out of the box, uh, you know, initiative to think about. I'm going to switch gears for a second here because I'd be remiss as a technology company not to go here. Um, but I wanted to touch on uh, tech and data because um, you do capture a lot of data. But yeah. how are you as a department using innovative technology like AI? There's a lot of chatter around chat GPT and AI to gain efficiencies and, and be more impactful on your mission and looking at your population. One of the benefits that we have with being such a large department and having so many different components to our department is we do have a lot of data. So an example is we issue all the birth certificates in the state of Tennessee. And you might think of a birth certificate as just a name and a date of birth and the parents' names. We have about 120 different data points that we collect on every single birth. And similarly for death. So there's a lot of information that doesn't actually go on that certificate that we have behind the scenes. And then we're also collecting data on our patients, but we also administer a lot of surveys. We are the survey arm, if you will, for the CDC on a lot of different surveys. And this is how we collect a lot of national data on things like, again, obesity rates and heart disease and things like that. And so we have this enormous amount of data 
And one of the things that we're working towards is how can we use that data? And it's it's very hard. It's kind of this chicken and egg dance where we, we don't often have enough data for it to be statistically significant in a small geography. But that's where we're making a lot of these decisions. That's where we're deciding where we need a grocery store, where we need more housing. So we, we really need data at a community level, but oftentimes we can't go below a county level. And this is where we can use a little bit of predictive modeling. And, and we have to kind of, I, I call it ishing, right? And, and all of the epidemiologists and the statisticians that we work with, they get really nervous about this because you don't want to make decisions that are, are not based on all of the data that you want. But on the other hand, there's two uh, responses I have to that. One is that oftentimes we're, we may not get to a point where we have all the data that we want. And we don't want that notion of paralysis by analysis, right? We, right? we want to be thinking about how do we move forward even in light of constraints like not having robust data sets. The other piece, and th- this is again what m- makes people squirm but is very real, is that many, many decisions are made without data. Uh, many mm. decisions are still made based on politics, based on gut instinct, based on anecdotal information from a community. And an example of this, I worked again previously in transportation, and we had a $7 billion budget. And the way that the money was allocated to us from the federal government did not require us to necessarily go through scenario planning to look at different solutions for a roadway and see which one was the most efficient or optimized costs. Nor did we have to do any post analysis to figure out if if we funded something, did it actually achieve what it was intended to achieve? So we were spending 10 million, 40 million here or there without a lot of data going into that solution. What would often happen is we would have a local mayor call us and say, I'm getting a lot of complaints. People don't like sitting through the red light. I need you to install a turn lane. And we would say, okay, we'll do that. And we'll write it into our budget and we'll we'll fund it. You need to throw a little bit into the kitty. We'll throw this much into it and we'll get that project done. So I think it, that makes people un- uncomfortable. It certainly makes me uncomfortable as well. But we all make decisions in all of our lives. And we're, we're finding a lot more of that now as well with uh, we have uh, the younger generations now moving to cities based on gut instinct, not necessarily that they already have a job there, but they like the community, right? And and that's kind of, they're, they're going on that vibe. So we we have to realize that there's a lot that happens in the world that is not based on complete evidence or all the sound data that we have. And in that way, I think it's really important to, again, rethink as we were talking earlier about our bottom lines, right? And kind of what are our metrics? We may be in a space where we're thinking about process metrics. We may be thinking about different ways of looking at data. And maybe we do have qualitative data be a larger component of our decision-making. And for many of us, that's very uncomfortable, but it's, it's really where the world is right? Mm -hmm. We can collect all the data that we want on our patients, but our patients may have a very undata-ish reason for some of the decisions they make about medicine compliance or whether or not they're they're coming in to a clinic. We really, in, in, in my view, have an opportunity to be rethinking how we're using data to combine data with different data sets 
and to be really marrying some of the the data that we're each collecting because we're all collecting different data and seeing how we can put that data together, have it paint a picture for us, but also use some of the anecdotal data to help us complete that picture. Great, great. I I love the ishing. I'm going to use that one because I I love that. Um, I could ask you questions for a whole nother hour. Um, I love the conversation. I thought what I do right now just to, to share the love here is open it up to the audience and see if folks have any questions for uh, Leslie. Um, I love these. Okay. So the first one, Leslie, if you had an unlimited budget, which area or program would you invest the most resources? One of the biggest challenges is food access. Uh, Mm -hmm. Food access and transportation, both of those. And you find that in both rural areas and in urban areas. And there's different reasons, but especially with a full service grocery store, it comes down to, again, can the grocery store be profitable? And food access is just such a big component of what's driving some of our poor health outcomes. And then as well, transportation, whether it's transportation to healthcare or to jobs or, or to education. So I, I feel like there's a little more in transportation that's available. So for me, it would be addressing food deserts in the U.S. Great. Thank you for that. Okay, next one. Is anything unique to Tennessee in the area of health challenges and concerns that providers should be aware of? Well, one of the things about Tennessee is that it's a very rural state. So about 60% of the population lives outside of an urban area. And I feel like in the last decade, we've become more cognizant of our rural areas in our country. Previously, I feel like they were kind of forgotten, right? Everything was in the big cities and that's where we gravitated. That's where we put a lot of our resources. But really the heart of our country is in rural areas. And especially again, post-COVID, we're finding a lot of rural areas are becoming very popular. Folks can telework. They want that quality of life. They don't want that stress of not being able to afford housing. And so we're seeing rural areas make a comeback. And that's what we're seeing in Tennessee. We have some incredible communities with a lot of history and a lot of pride. And a few years ago, when we started a grant program that funds the playgrounds and splash pads and things like that, we had communities submit their applications and tell us a little bit more about their economic climate and their vision for their community. And we thought, okay, we're a health department issuing money for people to build things. Are they going to be confused? What type of response are we going to get? We had 13 times more in funding requests than we had funding available. And we had 89 of the 95 counties apply for the first round. And the applications were phenomenal. Communities know exactly what they want. They just have been under-resourced. So I think these rural communities in Tennessee and in many, many other places in the country are really where it's at. Yeah. Thank you for that. That's really interesting. Uh, That's good to hear about the the community pride and the investment they want to make. Last one we're going here. Let's see. How would your housing proposal differ from Trump's proposal to build up to 10 futuristic freedom cities on federal land? Oh, that's really interesting. So I I can't say that I'm I'm intimately aware of that, but nor am I. Yeah. So um, I don't know that I can adequately answer that question, but I, I, I think the whole point of having that conversation around housing was just to think about how can we have different 
players and different entities thinking about, again, some of those basic components. And is there a way to monetize that for everyone so that everyone, if you're putting something into something, obviously you want to have a benefit for you. But with housing and food and transportation being some of the top three reasons for chronic disease that we're seeing, it, it this is all a, an intent to really just think differently because we've all seen those graphs about how much money we're pouring, pouring, pouring into our healthcare system, into our in our country, and we're not seeing those health outcomes that we want to see. So instead of pouring it into clinical care, in diagnostics and prescriptions, is there a, a better way where we can put some of that money into the more upstream root causes of what's driving these health outcomes? So I, I, I know that's not a direct answer to that question, but the point is, can we get different people around the table and can we look at problems from a different angle and can we invest in resources at a different point on the spectrum and see if we can actually get a different result? I, that was a tough one. I, I I wouldn't know how to answer that one at all. So I'm glad you, you came up with that. Okay, last one. Why does Tennessee allow monopolies via COPAs, especially those that result in lower quality of care for the community? So that's really interesting. So a COPA is a certificate of public advantage. And we are one of the only places in the country that that has this unique situation. So basically, we have the ability to think about if there is a monopoly created through the merger of two healthcare systems, is that to a public benefit? And we had a COPA that was approved a few years ago in Northeast Tennessee and in Western Virginia. And this is with valid healthcare systems. And the interesting part about that is that there are metrics related to the COPA where the healthcare system has to show how they're investing in and improving population health. And I, I don't know that there's really, again, similar to the other question, a one size fits all answer to this, but it, it's an interesting place to think about what is the role of government? Should government be involved in the creation of monopolies or preventing monopolies, if you will, just like we are with telecom systems when they merge or airline systems when they merge? Should government have a role in that space? And if we do, what what is our role and how do we measure success for that type of merger? And how do we continue to look at it over time and to see if it is a true advantage to the public, not only just at the beginning, but through throughout? So that is something that is very much ongoing right now in our state. And a, a lot of other states are, are looking at this example because it is pretty unique in the country. Well, that was the last question. We're almost at the top of the hour. I wanted to say, Leslie, it was such an insightful conversation today. I had fun and learned a lot. I, I think the audience probably did as well. The work that you do inspires me and many others. Are there any final thoughts that you wanted to leave the audience with about your role or, or message that you want to leave about your mission today? Oh, well, first, just thank you so much for the opportunity to be a part of the conversation today. It was a lot of fun. And the only message I would like to leave everyone with is if you're not already partnering with government, whether it's public health or your state or local school system or parks and recreation, there are components of government who are funded to make investments in the community. And a lot of times those decisions are, again, influencing the lives of patients that we're seeing. 
So if you're interested in learning more about those systems, you can honestly cold call someone up, ask them to go have a cup of coffee. But a lot of what we've seen in our state, we're really proud of a lot of the partnerships that we have. And some of the best partnerships have formed organically just by getting to know one another's systems, what one another's bottom lines are, how we make decisions and priorities. So I would just say, don't be afraid of reaching out to somebody who maybe works in a completely different space. And if nothing else, you get to learn something a little bit interesting and new. I love that. Stay curious. And on that note, thanks everybody for joining us today for the Better Care Podcast. Until next time. Thanks, everybody. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye.